Please open in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, 1 Corinthians 9. If you stand, I'll be reading verses 1 through 18, 1 Corinthians 9, verses 1 through 18, as we continue working through Paul's defense of his apostleship in light of the nature of payment of a full-time Christian worker. Fascinating. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 1. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. My defense to those who examine me is this. Do we not have a right to eat and drink? Do we not have a right to take along a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or do only Barnabas and I not have a right to refrain from working? Who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat the fruit of it? Who tends a flock and does not use the milk of the flock? I'm not speaking these things according to human judgment, am I? Or does not the law also say these things? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. God is not concerned about oxen, is he? Or is he speaking altogether for our sake? Yes, for our sake it was written, because the plowman ought to plow in hope and the thresher to thresh in hope of sharing the crops. If we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share the right over you, do we not more? Nevertheless, we do not use this right, but we endure all things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who perform sacred services eat the food of the temple, and those who attend regularly to the altar have their share from the altar? So also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. But I have used none of these things. And I am not writing these things so that it will be done so in my case, for it would be better for me to die than to have any man make my boast an empty one. For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I am under compulsion. For woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this voluntarily, I have a reward. But if against my will, I have a stewardship entrusted to me. What then is my reward? That when I preach the gospel, I may offer the gospel without charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. Please be seated. How many of you know that William Wilberforce was a British politician who lived from 1759 to 1833? He was elected to Parliament in 1780 as a crass pagan who longed for the power, influence, and pleasure that political office can provide. However, he was radically converted to Christianity in 1784, and he quickly considered leaving politics because he was no longer enamored of its so-called rewards. In fact, he began to loathe the ungodliness and arrogance that it spawned. However, when he went to talk to a pastor about dropping out of politics and and pursuing full-time ministry, he was famously convinced by none none other than John Newton that if he kept his pursuit of Christ foremost, then he had a special opportunity to do good for Christ in the government. An excerpt from Newton's letter to Wilberforce is instructive. You meet with many things which weary and disgust you, which you would avoid in a more private life, but then they're inseparably connected with your path of duty. And though you cannot do all the good you wish for, some good is done and some evil is probably prevented by your influence and that of the few gentlemen in the House of Commons like-minded with yourself. It costs you something, many hours, which you could employ more to your own personal satisfaction and exposes you to impertinencies from which you would gladly be exempted. But if upon the whole you are thereby instrumental in promoting the cause of God and the public good, you will have no reason to, gr- to regret that you had not so much more leisure for more retired exercises than some of us are favored with. Nor is it possible at present to calculate all the advantages that may result from your having a seat in the house at such a time as this. 
The example and even the presence of a consistent character may have a powerful, though unobserved, effect on others. You are not only a representative of Yorkshire. You have the far greater honor of being a representative for the Lord in a place where many know him not, and an opportunity of showing them what are the genuine fruits of that religion which you are known to profess. Now, Wilberforce went on, as you know, through tireless efforts and the recruitment of many allies to see the slave trade abolished in Britain, a goal that was partially accomplished in 1807 with the abolition of the slave trade itself, and then in 1833, three days before his death, with the outlawing of slavery itself in Britain and its colonies. Now, in expending this great energy, Wilberforce never forgot that it was the proclamation and pursuit of the person and work of Christ that were his highest pleasure and goal, not the abolition of slavery. In fact, he wrote a book on the practice of Christianity called A Practical View of the Prevailing Religious System of Professed Christians in the Higher and Middle Classes of this Country as Contrasted with Real Christianity. Imagine that for a title and probably reveals to you his view of what the Christianity of his day was like. Now, we're most easily drawn into the sin of idolatry and the pursuit of those things that bring us the rewards that we most intensely desire. If our most passionately pursued rewards are the pleasures the world brings, then we will idolize the pleasures of this world. If our greatest reward is the pleasure of knowing and living for Jesus, then we will subjugate all our other desires to the one overriding overriding reward of being conformed to his image and gaining his eternal commendation. This is done as we live and proclaim the gospel in every sphere of life. As we've often said, it is not as though the righteous pursuit of the pleasures of family and finances, career, hobbies, sports, politics, art, media, etc. are inappropriate, simply that they must never become ultimate. All other pleasures are properly bounded by our one great passion to know Christ and to make him known. Thus, we must be careful and honest in our evaluation of each area of our lives to biblically discern the true reward for which we are really striving. Was Wilberforce striving for abolition or was he striving for Jesus? Are we striving for our careers or our families or are we striving for Jesus? So what we'll see this morning is that the true believer is protected from idolatry and sets a powerful example to others as they sacrificially proclaim and live the gospel, not for an earthly reward, but as their greatest reward. The true believer is protected from idolatry and sets a powerful example to others as they sacrificially proclaim and live the gospel, not for an earthly reward, but as their greatest reward. Passionate commitment to the gospel protects us from idolatry. Now, in chapter 9, we discuss the details of Paul's defense of his apostleship as he appealed to the Corinthians' status and then defended through six clear principles his right to pursue financial independence. And he wasn't pursuing this simply to remind them of his apostleship, as though he just wanted to get in a little dig. I'm the apostle and you ought to listen to me. But it appears that they were refusing to listen because they were equating themselves with him. We have the Spirit. We have prophecy. We know what to do. And so you, Paul, don't have the right to tell us that we can't go into these idol sacrifices, eating the meat there, and not not be committing idolatry. We have the right to do these things because we have the same teaching as you. And Paul's saying, no, you don't. I am an apostle. The teaching of the Word of God through me trumps what you No, and this is true for apostles. This is true then for all of the principles of Scripture. As you have the Old Testament 
prophets, and then you have the New Testament apostles and prophets and all that they wrote written down for us, all that they spoke that we need to know written down for us in Scripture. Paul's saying, look, that authority trumps your daily living of the Christian life. That is, your personal thoughts about how you ought to live. We must always base our living, our understanding of the world and the truths of Scripture. So he is reminding them of the fact that he says, I'm free, I'm an apostle. I've seen Jesus our Lord. You're my work in the Lord. In fact, he points to the Corinthians themselves as the proof that he is truly an apostle, which means that they ought to listen to him, that they ought to follow his example, and that they ought to be used of him or, or encouraged by him to continue to proclaim the truths of the gospel as he does. So again, he's appealing for a specific purpose. He's going to show them his rights. Then he's going to say, I choose to give those up, even though the authority that I carry, I can never give up. I would never give that up. So Paul's appeal to the Corinthian status. He says, if to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you. This is a bit sarcastic, I think. You are my seal of apostleship in the Lord. There's others who are saying, I'm not truly an apostle, that you don't have to listen to me, that I don't really have the word of the Lord. I have the truth of God. I did see Jesus, our Lord. I have been commissioned by him, and you yourselves are the proof of this. We said last week, if they weren't a real church, if he wasn't a real apostle, they weren't a real church. If he wasn't proclaiming the true message of Christ, then they weren't Christians, And you have to remember that when the Apostle Paul is presenting the truths of Christianity, the mysteries hidden in the Old Testament and revealed in the New, this is the first time they've been revealed. You see, we proclaim these truths on the basis of what is now revealed through them. But the primary seal of an apostle was the fact that as he proclaimed that gospel message, people were converted. They actually were transformed through the gospel to to become new creatures, to have the truth of Jesus transformed their lives. They were true believers. And so true churches springing up from the work of the apostles was the first sign and seal of their true authority, the fact that they had come from Christ. We now have a derived authority. You see, we proclaim the truths of the gospel, but they have already been proclaimed. We're proclaiming that which has already been given. So Paul claims to be that they are his seal. You're the proof of my authenticity. Therefore, what? You should listen to me. Why are you listening to these others? Why are you then telling me that I don't have the right or the authority to say you can't commit idolatry in these ways? You can eat the meat, right? That, that has been sacrificed to idols, that's not a sin. It's just meat, and there are no real idols. But you cannot go back to these sacrifices and participate through your eating because that is idolatry, and there's only one true God. You must serve him alone. Now, he launches after this, so he, he defends his apostleship first by the fact that they are his seal. Their true conversion proves he's an apostle. But then he's going to launch into a proof of the fact that as an apostle, he deserves their financial support because it appears that what they were saying was something along the lines of, well, all right, you say you're an apostle, but you're not taking any money, therefore you must not have the gifts. No one's giving you money. Remember patronage? The idea that who you got your money from really established your authority, established your right to do what you were doing. Paul says, look, I'm not going to take that. And he said, well, all that means is that you're not really an apostle. You can't take it. You don't have the gifts. Paul says, no, no, let's discuss this. I'm going to prove to you that I have the right. I am an apostle. I've seen Jesus our Lord. You are my seal. And as an apostle, I have the full right to receive financial support from you. He's going to prove this so that he can then give it up to demonstrate the reality of his apostolic heart. He has the right, but he will give it up to show that his pursuit of Christianity is sincere, 
So he's giving it up not because he's not an apostle. He's going to be giving up this financial support for the very proof of his apostleship. But first, he proves that he, he deserves it. So that was Paul's proof of his right to financial support. And we saw six principles. Remember the right of necessity. We have the right to eat and drink. Principle of example, there are others out there, legitimate followers and servants of Christ, the brothers of the Lord and Cephas and the other apostles. In fact, they're supported to the extent that their wives can go along. So why can't we be supported? I'm an apostle too. So if they are supported and you're happy to support them, I'm an apostle just as they are. So I too should be supported. Principle of example. Principle of wages. He says, well, a soldier doesn't pay his own way. The government pays him. Right? A farmer all right, doesn't give up all of the fruit of, the, of his vineyard. He eats some of it. He receives the benefit. And a shepherd receives the benefit of the flock. Then he talked about the principle of principles from the law. He says, it's not just natural principles I'm talking about, the law of, of wages that you receive, but the law says, he says in verse 8, that the worker is worthy of his wages. It's a spiritual principle. And he uses the physical principle in verse 9 of not muzzling the ox while it is threshing. When the ox is doing the work of threshing out the grain, it deserves to eat some of the grain to receive the benefit of what it's doing. Because the sower, he says, ought to sow and, and hope. The plowman ought to plow and hope. That is, if you are a farmer, when you do that work, you expect to receive back from it. And this is in the law of God. It was in the Old Testament. He goes on in verse 11 to say, and don't confuse things by saying, well, that's spiritual work. And so how can we mix spiritual work with physical stuff? People sometimes do that. They're like, well, you know, why does, it, why does the church appeal for money at all? Well, you know, why are workers paid? Because it is financial support that enables them to accomplish their job. You can't fly across the ocean with your hands, right? You need a plane. You need someplace to stay. You need food to eat, so therefore, material things are not unspiritual. That's huge. He says, look, if we sowed spiritual things in you, verse 11, is it too much if we reap material things? What's the implication? Of course it isn't, because it's the only way to live. And if we're giving our lives in this way, then to receive back from you materially is entirely appropriate. It's the right thing. Do not make that dichotomy in the church. Because giving is so often misused, because appeals for money are so often cravenly greedy, it isn't that money isn't needed. We're going to send Eva Huff to India. We're going to have a dinner on July 30th, and we're going to tell you how we as a church are planning to support her. She's grown up in this church. We have trained her. We've provided for her. We're getting ready to send her. She's going to need support. It's a unique thing that we are training up, as it were, our own missionary to then send her out. So you're going to have to be prepared. How will we support her? How will you help us continue to do that? These things matter. She can't get to India and stay there to do the full-time work that we believe the Lord has given her to do in support of those who are building the church unless she has money. If she sows spiritual things, then she should deserve to reap material things. Then he goes on uh, in verse 12 to reveal why he's doing this, right? He says, if others share the right over you, do we not more? They were supporting other people. Because look, if you're going to support other people, why not me? I'm your, I'm your dad. I'm your father in the gospel. I'm an apostle. How could you support them and not support me? What is it with that? Why don't I have the right for that? And then he, he, give, he tips his hand. He says, we don't use this right. He's going to finish this out. That's for this morning in verse 15. We don't use this right, but we endure all things. Why? So that we will cause no hindrance for the gospel. That's what makes a true gospel minister, is that they will do anything so that the gospel goes forward, and if there's anything that would hinder it, they'll set it aside. That's what makes them worthy of their wages, worthy of their task. Because I just said they deserve it. They only deserve it because of the nature of their heart. And that's what the Apostle Paul is going to prove. We have the right structurally in the law to do this, but it is our heart, our pursuit, our passion for Christ that proves our worthiness. And he's going to say, that's why I refuse this. 
even though I have this right. If anything would hinder the gospel, we would set aside money in a moment. And that's what I've done, is what he says. Fascinating, powerful. Gives two more illustrations, almost like he goes back to it. Oh, but I got two more things to say. Remember that the temple servers get their get their finances, get their meals from the temple. Probably referring to Old Testament Israel, but just look around. Spiritual service, you receive the benefits of that spiritual service materially. And then he gives the final illustration. He's been building to this, his mic drop statement in verse 14. So also the Lord, the Lord Jesus directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. This is a natural pattern. The general pattern is those who give their lives in this full-time way all right, apostles then, but also missionaries, those who uh, evangelists, and then those who in First Timothy chapter 5, elders worthy of double honor. We've extended that out to those who are working in gospel ministry in support of the building of the church. All, all of those are worthy of those wages because the Lord directed that that's how they should get it. Jesus said this, and he kind of goes, done. All right, this is the proof that I should be able to receive support from you. I am not some fake apostle. I have the right to do this, but now. So that's Paul's proof of his right to financial support. Now he's going to defend his refusal of that financial support, of every right. But remember that the gospel proclamation is not just about right, because things are real and important. It is also about example. Paul's going to say, look, I'm proclaiming to you that I deserve, as an apostle, to have this, but by my example, I'm going to set it aside because that's going to demonstrate the reality of my commission, the truth of my love of Christ and my true pursuit of the gospel. In your situation, if I were to keep this, it would taint the gospel, so I'm setting it aside. I'm telling you by my example that even though I am free to take this, I choose to give it up. First, though, He's going to remind them that he's not subtly writing this to try to influence them to get some payment, right? He's going to slip this in. I'm going to prove this to you. No, I'm not taking it, but, you know, maybe you should give me some backdoor money or some patronage, you know, somewhere else. No, look what he says in verse 15. He just raises this. I have used none of these things. Now, that's powerful because he just said the Lord directed Right? We wouldn't hold this as an absolute command, like do not lie, because the apostle says, I can, I can choose, I am free to not do what the Lord has directed in this sense. I have the freedom to do that, to set it aside. And ministers of the gospel can, and they do at times, set aside their right to be paid. Paul says, look, it's a direction of God. This is the principle, but I can set this aside if it would somehow compete with the gospel. And so I have, I've used none of these things. And just in case you thought, I might be trying to get a little support from this letter. I am not writing these things to you so that it will be done in my case. I mean, just laying it out. Because everyone would say, see, you know, he really wrote the letter. Although he's telling you he's not going to take support, he really wants some. See how strongly he just proved to you that he should get it. You know, he's trying to, trying to do two things. Paul says, I am not writing. So on your outline, his defense of his refusal of financial support, he says, I am not writing to influence you to provide that support. Whenever Paul didn't take the support, he made it very clear. Acts 20, 34, you yourselves know that these hands minister to my own needs and to the men who are with me. Often Paul would provide not only for himself, but also for his whole team. He's probably a pretty good tent maker if he can make that kind of provision. That's what he did. He would work and he would provide for his whole team. 2 Corinthians 11, 9 this argument continues on with the Corinthians, all right? In later months, it grows even more strident. There are greater attacks upon him as they begin to attack him for his character, attack him for his greediness. All of this is, is in seed form here in 1 Corinthians. But in 2 Corinthians, it all kind of bursts on the scene. And he says this, 2 Corinthians eleven nine. 9, when I was present with you and was in need, I was not a burden to anyone. 
For when the brethren came from Macedonia, they fully supplied my need, and in everything I kept myself from being a burden to you. This is fascinating. He goes, look, other people brought support from other churches. And I took that because I have the right to do that. But I didn't take it from you because I know better. I knew that if I took it from you, it would cause a problem. So you can't accuse me of being greedy. He's already anticipating the arguments that are going to come. Here in 1 Corinthians, he knows his people. He knows who he is about. He says, look, I didn't take it from you then because I knew this would be a problem now. I took from other churches whose hearts were good and right. When he says to Philippi, he goes, you know, you, you, even in Thessalonica, he says to them, you, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Now, you provided for me. It was a blessing for a church that longed to do that. But not Corinth. He knew that they would hold it against him, that their patronage would cause them to want to receive his favor, right, to get favors from him, and they would try to use their influence to overshadow his ministry of the gospel. He says, I will not have it. I'm not writing that these things would be done in my case. He, he goes on to say, 2 Corinthians 12, 13, an even stronger appeal. He says, for in what respect were you treated as inferior to the rest of the churches? It's like, the, you know, you did these other things at other churches, but when you came to us, you did this. He goes, except that I myself did not become a burden to you. Forgive me this wrong. Here for the third time, I'm ready to come to you. I will not be a burden to you, for I do not seek what is yours. This is so important. 2 Corinthians 12, 14. I do not seek what is yours, but you. See, he's not throwing down against them to say, I don't, you know, I don't, I don't respect you, I don't, I don't love you, because I'm doing this because I love you. I don't want your stuff. I don't need your money. What I want is you. I want your lives. I want your love as it reflects a love of Christ. I want you to love and serve Jesus. And so I'm setting aside money from you so that I can get you. Because if his reputation is tainted in their eyes, and they will have a harder time serving, loving, and walking with Jesus, and they will be tainting others as well. Please understand this. If Satan cannot corrupt the actual character of a minister of the gospel, he will do everything possible to corrupt his reputation. And once that reputation is corrupted in a church or in a community, it makes it very difficult for that person to have the same kind of effect as they might have. This is a very powerful ploy of Satan, and you as a church must be aware of it. And you must be very careful to guard against it. Yeah, there are corrupt ministers. There are greedy ministers who should immediately be deposed, immediately be set aside from office. But there are many also who are not greedy, who love Jesus, and yet who are sometimes tainted even by the reputations of others who do. Paul says, look, I don't need your stuff. I want you. He goes on to say, for children are not responsible to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. In the early times, you don't ask your kids, hey, go earn some money and pay for me. Later on, that's true, right? Later on, when you are in your rocking chair drooling, they pay for you. But at the beginning, you pay for them. You, you, no one would expect that the parents would say, well, go on your own way. So he says, parents make a, or save up for their children. I will most gladly rather spend and be expended for your souls. If I loved you more, am I to be loved less? Because I'm not receiving payments, you're going to love me less? because I wasn't a burden to you, because I knew this would be best for you, you're actually going to turn that against me? So that's all the seeds of the argument that he's preparing here in 1 Corinthians. He knows his people, he knows his audience, and he knows that it is better to not take money from them, even though he's made a strong case to deserve it. So B here on your outline. So A is, I am not writing to influence you to provide support, and B I would rather die. Notice how emotional this is for Paul. Why? Because this is all bound up in the gospel. It's not just about money. It's not about his reputation, as it were. It's about the reputation of Christ. 
And Paul's one message, Christ and him crucified, and he will not allow money to get in the way of that. So he's passionate, and he says in verse 15, for it would be better for me to die than to have any man make my boast an, an, an idle one, make my boast an empty one. I, literally, I'd, I'd rather be dead than to have something get in the way of the person and work of Christ and the proclamation that I'm making. So I'd rather die than provide an excuse for others to accuse me of false motives. Because Paul said, look, I have one message, one purpose, to serve Jesus and love him. And saying, no, you don't. You're greedy. You have these other things in mind. You're trying to use us. Paul said, I'd rather die than have anybody actually think that Jesus wasn't primary in my heart and mind because he is the greatest and end goal of everything. I'd rather be dead, so I'm not taking any money from you. If anyone were to make my boast an evil one, he says, an, an empty one, I would rather just die. It would be better, he says, in fact. What is Paul's boast? That he that Christ and Christ alone is worthy, that the message of Christ and Him crucified is the one necessary thing, not Paul's own needs, not Paul's own desires, but Christ, and He will allow nothing to get in the way of that. Would it not be amazing if we all lived in this way? The only thing that mattered to us, not even our own reputation for ourselves, not trying to protect and guard our stuff or our place, but it would only bother us if somehow our reputation would cause people to think that Christ weren't greatest to us. That if something in our lives would cause people to think that Christ weren't the highest and greatest prize, making our boast, as it were, in Christ an empty one. Even if our own characters were still pure, we would hate and, and would rather die than to see our character maligned because we did something that helped people think that Jesus wasn't greatest. So he sets it aside. He says, I will not be greedy. I will not be accused of false motives. So this is the best way to do this. First Thessalonians 2.5. Remember, Paul's consistently defending his apostleship because his character matters. It is not simply a matter of preaching only. It is preaching and life. He's going to be setting his life as an example for them to follow. And he says in 1 Corinthians, he did, did that everywhere, excuse me, 1 Thessalonians 2, that he was being attacked again. He says, we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Never a pretext. That's what they were saying. Are you just here to get some money? Just here to get some support? 2 Corinthians 2.17, again, as this argument continues with them, for we are not like many peddling the word of God. Like we're some kind of sideshow, some, some you know, snake oil salesman, as though the gospel could be done in that way here. Look at Christ and then give me this. Right? I'm just doing all this, then you know, I open up the back of my trailer and you just put the money back in there. Now, this is not some kind of show. We're not peddling the word of God. This is the message of Jesus and him crucified and Anything that can be done to keep that message from being tainted, I will do. Imagine if those in our world today who are so quickly peddling the gospel would see this as real. They can't because they're not Christians. They can't because they don't love Jesus. A love of money demonstrates the reality of there being false teachers. They don't care about the reputation of Christ so that they can make money. And we know that Christ's name is dragged through the mud because of those who so shamelessly peddle the gospel. It is an absolute travesty. It's an abomination that the name of Jesus will be dragged through the mud by those who are greedy for money, claiming Christ. And anything we can do to keep from that is good. It's one of the reasons, by the way, we don't pass a plate if you just wanted to know. 
Yes, we still believe that giving is important. We believe it's part of your worship. And we believe, according to this passage, that ministers of the gospel should be paid and that gospel work takes money. But we want to do everything possible. I'm not saying it's the only way to do it. We say we want to do everything possible to keep there from being any thought that we are greedy for money. So we say, look, put it in the box. We want to see you put it in the plate so that there would be no thought that we are greedy for money. It is the characteristic of an elder and really then the characteristic of all believers because elders are to exemplify that character to not be greedy for money. First Peter 5.2, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. We will not be as Balaam who rushed after riches when he couldn't condemn Israel. Remember Balak, king of Moab, comes to Balaam, pagan prophet, says, curse the people. Balaam says, look, I'll I'll say what I got to say. The spirit of God comes upon him, closes his mouth from cursing, makes him bless three times. Balaam is not satisfied with that. He wants his money. So later on, he goes back to Balak and says, look, I couldn't curse them, but let me tell you what you can do to cause God to curse them. He says, look, send your women down and, and, and cause them to walk away into idolatry and Balaam got his payment both ways. He got his payment from Balak and his money, and he got his payment in judgment when the the nation of Israel killed him. All right? Jude 11, woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain, and for pay they have rushed headlong into the era of Balaam. That's the false teachers of the New Testament era. Greedy for money. Paul says, I'm not greedy for money, but I'm going to be sure that no one could ever even say it, that no one can touch my reputation because I haven't touched a cent of your money. You haven't given me any. You didn't accept any kind of offering or gift from them at all. No love offerings. You know, no, no shut the door and pass it around again. Right? I took nothing from you to be sure that Christ's name would not be dragged through the mud by someone greedy for money. Now, he's going to expand upon this a bit. So he's like, I took nothing because I wanted to be sure that the name of Christ, that my boast would be a true one, that Christ is everything. That's, a, that's all I'm about. But then he's going to say, I don't have any choice in this. This doesn't make me great to not take money for this. It doesn't make me some kind of martyr. Well, look how great I am. I'm not taking money. Back in the text. It says, for if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of from under compulsion. Away with whiny preachers. Look how hard we're working. Look how look our task. We're, we're out preaching the gospel and this is so hard. Away with this. This is what we do. This is what we have been given. This is a precious privilege. Away with whiny pastors. Oh, job is so hard and everything's so hard. Hey, being a pastor is hard. Working in this world is hard. Going out and trying to face the transgender movement and LBGTQ and, and all the stuff going on in your workplaces. You know what? I think that's a little harder than what I face every day when it comes to just natural circumstances. Paul says, look, I got nothing to boast about if I preach the gospel. It's what I'm supposed to do. It's what I've been given to do as an apostle, but also as we will see as a Christian. No whiners here. This is what we do. So he goes, look, it's not no great thing that I'm preaching the gospel, so I don't need to get money for it. Again, he's proven that he can and that the Lord directs this to be the case, but not because he's such a great guy, not because people who preach the gospel are special or unique or more spiritual or more valuable than anyone. Look, I'm just, I'm just a poor servant doing what I'm supposed to do. I don't, don't think I'm special. I don't, and in that sense, you shouldn't. Oh, everyone out there, look how special we are, look great rhetoric we have, great preachers we are, all our celebrity, this and that. Again, the worker deserves his wages. I get that. 
great preachers out there that we love and, and, and honor because of what they've done for the Lord. All that's wonderful, but they're not more special than anyone else, and certainly not you. Serving and faithfully living for Jesus in the midst of the trenches day in and day out. I was like, I don't have anything to boast about. I have nothing to boast about if I preach the gospel. He says, I'm on a compulsion. And I have to do this. Now, again, this is a holy compulsion. This isn't some kind of compulsion that is he hates to do. But as we will see, it is against his natural will. No one would give his life for Jesus naturally. That's going to be the point here. Everyone would pursue simply their own desires. That's what they would do. Paul says, I don't get any credit. Jesus did that. The Holy Spirit inside of me is the one who then prompts me, gives me the ability to do this, and I received my commission as an apostle in this more specific sense, directly from God himself. I'm under compulsion. I love Amos 3.8. Amos was a prophet, not the son of a prophet. He says, who, he says, a lion has roared, who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken, who can but prophesy? I don't have any choices. God speaking. Yes, this is God speaking. I don't have any choice but to say a lion roars because it, it, it's powerful. It, need, it proclaims its message of authority. Well, God is much more authoritative. If he speaks, how much more must we speak? It's no credit to us in that sense. This is the word of God. Why would we do anything different? Acts 4.20, we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. Paul made his defense before Agrippa. And he said this over and over when the Lord waylaid him on the Damascus road. He says, Jesus said this to me, but get up, stand on your feet. For this purpose I've appeared to you, to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things in which I will appear to you, rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. I have the message of eternal life. I can do no less. Jesus said, you will go tell people they can live. And I said, I will do that. That's our message. I mean, you have the message that could save people from cancer, save people from their diseases, and you sat around in your house and didn't do it. Woe is you. And that's what he says. I'm under compulsion. Woe is me if I don't preach the gospel. He's not talking about wringing his hands in emotional distress. Woe is me is a judgment term. If I don't preach, I am under God's disciplining hand. I should be judged by God if I don't preach the message that I've been given. That's power. And that's the message we've been given. We're not all apostles. We'll talk about it. We're not all commissioned in the same full-time way. In fact, as we said, there's very few that are. Very few. There were very few apostles. There are very few full-time ministers of the gospel because there are very few who are gifted in that way. Even on honor boards, there's only a couple usually. First Timothy 5, right? The elders who serve well are worthy of double honor, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. It's not bad elders on the board and a couple of them get paid. All right, to serve well in that sense is they are uniquely gifted to then be freed up to be paid full time. But it's very few. It's not most Christians. It can't possibly be the most important thing in the world to simply be the minister of the gospel. It is the message you have that is the most important thing in the world. That's what matters. Paul says, look, I, I got the message that people will be saved from their sins, delivered from the domain of darkness. I am under compulsion and woe is me if I do not speak. Romans 1.14, I'm under obligation. Paul, I thought, I thought the minister wasn't supposed to be under obligation. This is the right kind of obligation. I have no choice because of the greatness of the message and the greatness of the Savior. I'm under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, to preach the gospel. 
to what was me, he says, if I do not preach. Well, how does this apply to each one of us? Well, certainly to the one whom the Lord has directed and gifted to do this in a full-time way. It's what they're supposed to do. They're called and they have the precious privilege of this message. And if at any time a messenger of the gospel thinks he deserves payment because of his special sacrifice, spirituality, or unique status, he's immediately forfeited his right to receive payment. Immediately. I'm special, so I should get paid. No, Paul says I'm not special. And I don't deserve it from that standpoint. And then we're not all called to be full-time or paid vocational minister of the gospel, are we? But we cannot, for this reason, choose to be greedy for money. You can't be, well, ministers of the gospel can't be greedy for money. But see, I'm not going to become a minister of the gospel so I can kick back in America and be greedy for money. And I'll build my big house and I'll have my cool stuff and I'll pay some money to someone to get that work done. No, you're not allowed to do that. You are all to proclaim the message of Jesus Christ. You've been given the message. You just don't all do it as those who themselves are paid in a full-time way. Yet everything you do, your career and your hobbies and your art and your politics, all valuable pursuits, William Wilberforce, valuable things to do, but done underneath the one passion to proclaim the truth of the person and work of Jesus Christ. And if those become anything else, they're simply idols. If William Wilberforce says abolition is the most important thing in the world, it becomes only an idol and it becomes judged of God to do that if he were to have done that. But he didn't. He kept it in the proper place. Your family, your career, your stuff, it all comes underneath Christ and you are all called to that. No one may say, well, as other people sacrificing, not me. And we all sacrifice. It looks differently for each one. Could we possibly say that Matthew 28, 19, and 20 doesn't apply to all of us? Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe. That's all our commission. We all do that in different ways. Can we, all, can we say that only Paul had to live according to Philippians 3, 7? But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ, what is more, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish that I may gain Christ. That is for all believers. Christ is valuable to us in that way. He is our highest treasure. So whatever you do, whether you're a full-time minister freed up or missionary to do this, or whether you are one who is actually making that provision and that payment, daily working in your profession, we are all called to do one thing, to bring our passions and our desires and our loves underneath the one passion of serving, loving, and proclaiming Jesus. That's what we do as a church. That's what sets us apart. You are not a normal American you're not a normal Christian as our society defines it. Too many churches proclaiming that. Look, just be a Christian. It looks the same as everything else. It doesn't. The fact that you say the name of Jesus and claim to have come to know him radically changes your life or it's not Christianity. Paul says, I don't want anyone to think I somehow deserve a reward because I've devoted my life to preaching the gospel. He's just continuing to make this point. That was D. I don't want anyone to think I somehow deserve a reward because I've devoted my life to preaching the gospel. Look what he says. Back in verse 17. For if I do this voluntarily, I have a reward. If this were on me and I were to have chosen it, then you could maybe say, oh, Paul, you're a good guy. The fact that you would choose to do that, wow, we're going we're to pay you some money. He goes, then I would deserve it. So what he's saying there. If I did this voluntarily, if this were something I came up with on my own, if I were the one to have said, this is a great idea, I'll give my life to serve Jesus, then you can pay me all the money because I deserve it. He says, but I didn't, I'm under compulsion. Right? But if I do this apart from my will, getting back in our text, 
if I, if against my will, I have a stewardship. What is he saying? He doesn't want to do it? No. He's saying that it would never be anyone's will apart from the work of the Spirit of God through the Word of God to want to proclaim the gospel. It's all his. This is a stewardship I have. It's like salvation. If you could say, I chose God on my own, I was the one who exercised faith, I did these things because I'm so great, then you deserve your wages. Salvation is yours. But nobody does that. Nobody deserves it. Nobody. It was nobody's idea to put faith and trust in Christ. It's nobody's idea for Jesus to be the primary goal of their life and proclamation. You get no credit. That's what he's saying. If I did this voluntarily, I'd get the credit, but I don't. I'm under compulsion. I, it's against my will in that sense, and therefore, I have a stewardship. I'm granted this precious blessing of stewarding the riches of Christ. And against his will, again, does not mean grudgingly or lacking joy. Ephesians 3 says, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, Paul, talking about his commission. The stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me for you, that's what this is. It's a stewardship of God's grace, not a stewardship of legalistic religion, a stewardship of, look at how great Grace Community Church is, a stewardship of, of some personal personality cult, a stewardship of God's grace. He says that by revelation that was known to me the mystery as I wrote before in brief. By referring to this, Ephesians 3.3, 3, you will understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. How in past ages and generations, these things were not made known to the sons of men as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the spirit. To be specific, he says, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, fellow members of the body, fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power. What do you think about that message, Paul? What do you think about that commissioning? Ephesians 3, 8, to me the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. I have eternal riches for you. I have that which will benefit you, deliver you from death, and benefit you for all of eternity to place you in right relationship with the God of the universe. And I'm dispensing my commission to you. I have no choice, but it is the greatest job in the world. Please do not begrudge the fact that Jesus has taken from you your pursuit of this world. Do not begrudge it because the principles and the passions and the pleasures of this world are passing. You know this to be true. Rejoice that he's taken from you your pursuit of cars and homes and bigger families and more political influence and all those things you might have as your primary goals. Rejoice that he has taken those things from you because he's given you the riches of Jesus. Do not lament them. Too many Christians, oh, can't do this as a Christian and can't do this as a Christian and why can't we be a part of our culture as a Christian? What is that? Where's, where's the apostle Paul in that? Where are the early disciples in that? I just wish we could look like our culture a little more. My precious teenagers here, my college students, can I just look like the culture and can I just be like the culture a little more? Why can't I go? Because you're a Christian. And Jesus has delivered you from your culture. It is the most precious thing ever. You have a stewardship entrusted to you. Colossians 125 of this church says, Paul, I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God. We don't all have exactly the same kind of stewardship within the house of God, right? We don't all do exactly the same thing. But we all have a stewardship to see that the body is built. We, we just discussed that. So that's, why, that's why in Ephesians 4, we talked about that every one of you has a part. Let us not get too big on appreciation for ourselves. Luke 17, 7. Which of you, having a slave plowing or tending the sheep, will say to him, when he's coming from the field, come immediately and sit down and eat? 
Will he not say to him, prepare something for me to eat? Properly clothe yourself, serve me while I eat and drink. And afterwards you may eat and drink. He does not thank the slave because he did the things which he was commanded, does he? So you too, when you do all the things which are commanded, you say, we are unworthy slaves. We have only done that which we ought to have done. It doesn't denigrate the fact that you are a child of God, that you are a, a, a citizen is his kingdom, in his kingdom, but we are not more, excuse me, not less than unworthy slaves. Because we don't, we're not like NBA players. They make a three-point shot and they beat their chest and run. You're like, dude, you're not paid for that. People have been doing that since they started playing basketball. Why are you special? Put away the fist. You dunk the ball. Ooh, ah. Everybody is, why are you in the NBA? Cool it. It's what you do. Christians, we're going to go out witnessing all week. We're going to take our high schoolers. We're not going to walk off a porch, throw down the clipboard. (sighs) I mean, imagine the people looking at that. That's why, why do I, can't, I can barely watch basketball anymore. It's, just, it's, a, it's sad. Because I'm like, what is that? Well, because we're just unworthy servants. You walk off the porch of somebody to share the gospel with. Right? You, you do a good day's work, rightly working for your wages with honesty and truth, living out as a Christian. You don't walk home and dunk you know, in your little desk drawer. You say, that, I'm an unworthy slave. That's just what I should have done. But yet it's with joy and total absolute privilege. We work heartily as to the Lord in all things. Colossians 3.22. Slaves in all things obey those who are masters on earth. Now with external service as those who merely please men. As mere, I mean, what is it to please men merely? It's those who merely please men. But with sincerity of heart fearing the Lord. Whatever you do. Whatever you do. Do your work heartily as to the Lord rather than for men. Why? Knowing that from the Lord, you receive the reward of the inheritance. We all work this way. Paul had a different calling, but he had the same mandate, the same stewardship. Consider Joseph in Potiphar's house. Potiphar, you know, is a slave there, and Potiphar says, look, I'm putting you in charge of all of my stuff. Joseph did not go to the slave bar, wherever they went, you know, and say, hey, you see how great I am because I am Potiphar's steward? And they were like, what are you talking about? You're his slave. If you don't do that, he's going to kill you. No, God's not going to kill us. That, the, the illustration breaks down. But I think you get the idea. Look, I am, look how great I am. I'm Potiphar's steward. No, that's the only thing you've been given to do. That's your job. He did it joyfully. He did it well. did it as under the Lord. But he didn't have any choice. Don't expect kudos from other Christians or from other believers because you're just doing what you're supposed to do. Okay, we build each other up. We delight in these things. I think you get my idea. But Paul is real. He is saying just that. I don't deserve anything. And I don't deserve any money back from this, even though I have the right to get it. And so I'm going to make sure that that becomes clear. So you might say, well, Paul, what is your reward then? If you're not going to get the financial reward, in this case, which, which you deserve, which is right for you to get, the Lord said you should. He says, what then is my reward? He asked the question. Why are you doing this, Paul? That when I preach the gospel, I may offer the gospel without charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. In not making full use of my right, I prove that my motives are pure and I demonstrate that Christ is greatest. That's the reward. That I don't use my full right because if I did, you would accuse me of greediness and selfishness and the gospel would be tainted. I desire for my reward to come exclusively from preaching the gospel, not any kind of benefit associated with the gospel. My reward then is to set aside my right to be rewarded. 
And again, we don't all set aside our right in the same way. By the Lord's grace, I'm able to receive the benefits and blessings of the pay that this church provides because it does not taint me in your minds. And if it ever did, it would go. It would go in a minute. Why? Now, I'm not saying that would be easy. I'm not saying, well, look at you. But it would have to go. If it ever would taint you for me to receive money from you, it would have to go or I'm not a minister of the gospel. That's how, that's how it works. So Paul says, look, my special reward is to receive nothing from you so that Christ ultimately is seen to be the one motive of my heart. But does everyone around you know that? Do they know that your one motive is Jesus as you work for the money that your wages receive, as you pour into your families, as you enjoy your politics in the right kinds of ways? Do they know that if all of those things were gone, if you received nothing back from any of those things, that it would still be your one passion that Jesus would be honored? Do they know it? And are you making sure that they know it by refusing to take anything from them which would taint your reputation in this way? That's our application for this morning. You're not all ministers of the gospel doing this. I have a special way that I have to protect that reputation. You have special and unique ways in which you must protect your reputation. You must not be an idolater. It's all, it's all working its way back to that. So that the world would never, could not accuse you of putting anything above Jesus. I don't have all the answers as to what that will look like for you. That's the principles of the word of God and the power of the spirit of God working in your individual situation. But this is the principle that you would refuse anything which would taint the reputation of the Lord Jesus in your life. That's what Paul's doing, even though in this sense, he deserved it and had the right to take it. Paul Rosner, Paul's reward is the privilege of offering the free gospel free of charge, and in doing so, his own ministry becomes a living paradigm of the gospel itself. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the precious privilege of serving you that you have given us the message of reconciliation. You have given us the unfathomable riches of Jesus. Lord, I pray that we would do everything, anything necessary in our lives, that that message, the motives for that message would not be tainted, that we would not be idolaters in any way, that we would set aside anything which would somehow cause a hindrance to the truths of the gospel, a hindrance to the supremacy of Christ in our own lives and even in our reputation before others that we would, we would work hard, that your name would be exalted above all things. In your precious name, Lord Jesus, amen.